Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Senator Megan Hunt. When people talk about voter ID or abortion or immigration, like these are really hot button issues in Nebraska. But on the whole, I mean, they aren't helping the average family or the average worker or the average student have an easier life. All the legislation that I care about and all of the policy that I want to use, like the small time that I have here in the legislature to work on, are those things that make you go, how did my life get easier? I can breathe a sigh of relief. Government is actually working for me and helping simplify my life and increase my opportunities. Not just these little, like, buzzword things and news clips and clickbait that people tend to rely on because they're more worried about getting attention than governing well. We talk about Hunt's legislative achievements, goals for a second term, as well as how the experience has shaped her view of the political system. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. Hi, and you're listening to Car Free Midwest. We're a podcast based in Omaha, Nebraska, exploring the stories, barriers, and joys of getting around the Midwest without a car. Our goal is to build a community around more transportation equity and less car dependency. I'm Sarah Johnson. And I'm Joshua LeBure. We'll be here every other week with interviews, topics, and documentary pieces covering all things transportation. And we'll be talking a lot about bikes, e-bikes, and cargo bikes, because once you get to know us, you'll find that that's what we're obsessed with. So subscribe to Car Free Midwest wherever you listen to podcasts. A production of Figure Podcasts. With support from Mode Shift Omaha. This is Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Senator Megan Hunt, who represents the 8th Legislative District in Omaha, consisting of Dundee, Benson, and Keystone. I last spoke with Senator Hunt on this show after she'd wrapped up her first year in the legislature in 2019. This time we talk about how her first term has impacted her view of our political system and what's possible within the unicameral, as well as what her legislative goals are for her second term, which she's now running for. Here is the conversation. Well, Megan, uh, Senator Hunt, I, sorry, I, I probably shouldn't call you Megan right away as we get started, but uh, Senator Hunt, thank call you. Call me Megan. <laughs> Maybe too per, too personal or familiar, I don't know. But uh, yeah, basically, thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, we talked in the uh, in Pet Shop two years ago, and uh, it's fun to catch up. And also, congratulations on the new storefront and your, your adorable dog, Cricket. Thank you very much. I can't believe it's been two years. Um in some ways, it feels like it's been 10 years, and in some ways, it feels like it's been, you know, two minutes. So uh, it's great to talk to you again. And, of course, you can call me Megan. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's, it's been such a crazy couple of years in so many ways. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I get kind of the same feeling. But so one of the things I do want to talk about is the juxtaposition between when we talked before, you had been on the, in the legislature for about a year and now it's been longer. You're running for re-election. It seems like your your attitude toward it has, you know, understandably shifted a little bit just with experience. So, I mean, I guess one question is, uh, I mean, was it was it a difficult choice to run for re-election, or I mean, are, was it something where after the experience you were like, yeah, I'm ready for the challenge of more? Again, it's sort of both. I mean, 
there's definitely days when, uh, you know, I can't believe that I've committed myself to doing this. It comes with a lot of limitations, you know, and people should understand that. Like, you don't get paid anything. You have a lot of restrictions on your just time and, like, where you can be in the world. And uh, But at the same time, it's honestly the best job I've ever had. It's the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. Um, I love the people I work with. And it's really an honor to kind of get to do this kind of thing. You know, when I think about the scope of my life and the pie chart of my life, if I get to do this job for four years or eight years, like that's a really small percentage of my life. And it's a really special thing uh, to be able to participate in. Um, And it's not that, you know, being elected is like the most important thing a person can do or the most impactful thing a person can do. um, But you know, it's really not lost on me how how cool this platform can be if it's used for the right things. So during the time that I have here in the legislature, whether that's four years or eight years or whatever, um, you know, I really want to be worthy of the platform and worthy of the gift and not waste it. Well, you talk a lot about sort of the, the way that people idolize politicians and you're, you're sort of cautiously telling people, you know, maybe maybe don't turn, you know, your, your representatives into celebrities and sort of that that attitude. So, I mean, how did, how did that develop for you? Were, were you somebody who sort of idolized politicians at some point and how, how did you develop your stance on it? I don't know. I think I read a long time ago, something like never meet your heroes. You know, everybody kind of knows that adage and that definitely goes for politicians because we are not perfect people. You know, we have to work within an oftentimes really corrupt system, a really, um, a system where it can be hard to do something positive and good. And it feels like so often we're just choosing the least bad option or the lesser of two evils. And that's like the limitations that we get to work within as politicians. And so, you know, I don't think that working within a system like that, that is inherently, um, you know, so problematic in so many ways and that keeps so many people out from participating uh, that that's necessarily something that we should, I don't know, look up to and hold these people up as our heroes. I think that every person can, um, you know, use this platform as an elected official to make good decisions and, and have a good impact. And those are things to admire. But, you know, I try to tell everybody who, who's like, oh, my gosh, I love you. I love the work you do. It's like, well, I'm bound to disappoint you at some point. So don't get too excited. Um I just really have the approach, Tom, that there's nothing sacred about a seat in the legislature and there's nothing intrinsically special about me or anybody that entitles me to hold that seat. And at the end of the day, we're just people who are holding a job and the power is awesome, but we make mistakes. We have motives that are good and bad and we build our little legacies if we're lucky. Um, and then we're either term limited or we lose reelection. So I know that I'm just passing through and I have to use the time I have here with the power I have to just make life better for other people. Yeah, and there were some rumblings, at least, that you were sort of being courted to potentially run for federal office this time instead of another uh, another go at the state legislature. So, I mean, is that something that happened? And was that a difficult decision at all? Yeah, that did happen. Um, I was I wasn't recruited to run for the legislature at first. Actually, when I first ran for the Nebraska legislature, um, I announced in 2017, I actually got a lot of pushback from some people in the party because I wasn't recruited, because I wasn't somebody they chose for the position. Um, 
And now, you know, that I've done some time in the legislature and I've gotten just a modicum of political experience, some folks were, were looking at me for other higher positions. But, you know, I don't know how you can be in the Nebraska legislature, which is so unique. Um, you know, when you're in the minority as a progressive like I am, there are so many opportunities for leadership and for um you know, exercising power that you really don't see in any other states and you definitely don't see in Congress. So I don't know how I could give that platform up um, to go to Congress where basically nothing can ever get done. <laughs> so, you know, I, the Nebraska legislature is like the most amazing legislative body in the country because of the unique system that we have. And it's just not something I want to I want to give up. Yeah, well, I think to, to kind of connect to what you're talking about before, it seems like a lot of people want to run for office to become these kinds of celebrities, right? Where it's not, it's not the kind of celebrity you need to become like a movie star, or you know, it's 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 a weird sort of thing where you see a lot of people just sort of go for the inflammatory thing on Twitter, or like like I'm going to tweet something about how Superman being gay is ruining America or something. I see all these <laughs> things on Twitter, like, but the, it's like the to what you're saying, it's almost like. Some people want to be in federal office, not to actually do anything, not to have any part of legislation, but just to have sort of this platform to whine about things. I mean, like, <laughs> I guess my question is, why why is it that people want to get into office to have this platform as opposed to, like, why don't people want to go to, to you know, actually do, or why is it that it's become this celebrity at all for people in office? Is it just sort of because we want things to happen and so we just have hope that people are going to actually make some kind of change? Or, I mean, I guess, why, why is celebrity in politics? mixed at all. Isn't that interesting? I feel like people run for Congress to get a book deal. Basically, mm -hmm. it's like, you're not going to pass any legislation, you're not going to chair any committees, nobody in leadership is going to listen to you because you're new. But you know, maybe you can get a, a six figure book deal and, and call it good. I mean, I swear that that's the career track that some people are on. And that's really disheartening. You know, in terms of like, why folks do it and what the celebrity is about, your guess is as good as mine. I, you know, back to kind of the first question you asked me, I think it's really a bad thing when we lionize and, and turn our lawmakers into celebrities because really the work of government shouldn't be, it, it shouldn't be anything flashy. It shouldn't be anything that's like done to, to for ratings, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that government when it's at its best is really boring it's when you don't have to pay attention to the news every day and you don't see like some big political catastrophe happening every day. And that's when I think government is really at its best. So, you know, for me, whenever, you know, folks are going about their normal life and they aren't worried about anything specific, like that's, that's government at its best. Yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely interesting to talk about that in the context of, you know, the, the Trump era kind of ran on government will never be boring every day. There will be some kind of fire to put out yeah. or, Something chaotic. Did you have the Did you have the New York Times alerts on your phone during the Trump presidency? <laughs> yeah, I did. It was just like, what fresh hell is this today? Like every single day, there's just all these alerts about like, oh, look who's banned from our country now. Look who's not allowed to get food assistance now. Like whatever it is. And um, this type of politics where you're like constantly triaging between what your president is doing and what's happening in your own household and what's happening at work. And people just get so mentally and emotionally exhausted. And it's just the opposite of everything that government should be. 
Yeah, well, it, it, well, it's kind of something where I, I relate to that. It's nice not to have to worry constantly about everything, I think, although some people seem into that, right? And so I guess uh, another thing that I wanted to talk about was I sometimes feel a dissonance between uh, – obviously there's going to be people who have different approaches to what they're looking for in their representatives. It does seem like Nebraska voters, there are there's at least a large section of them that are – very interested in having insecure billionaires represent them at a local or federal level. And that's just one of those things that I, I struggle to relate to that specific, uh, you know, that impulse. And, you know, it's like sometimes I wonder, how do you, how do you, I guess, how do you get people to listen to talk is a question that comes up all the time in this, in this show, because everybody has their own little echo chambers they can make for themselves. But, I mean, do, do you ever find yourself just sort of like struggling to relate to the voters who have just a completely different conception of what the country should be, who maybe want that chaos or whatever it might be. And like, how, how do you, how do you feel like you're part of that, the community when I don't know that Nebraska tries that hard to have like a state culture? I think that ne- I, I relate a lot to Nebraskans and um, you know, for all the political differences that folks have, whether that's, an urban rural thing or a gender thing or a professional thing or a political thing. Like there are differences between everybody, but we can still draw lines of similarity between ourselves, no matter what we do and where we live and what we believe. I think that Nebraskans have a big libertarian streak. You know, we're a very independent state. And even though we're a conservative state, um, I do think that Nebraskans have an appetite for some of the, um, you know, some of the independence that I think I have shown in my time in the legislature. And, you know, when you when you look at the kinds of people that have been elected in Nebraska, you know, that's the kind of folks that voters tend to like. We have a separate problem that I think you're talking about, too, which is it's really hard to run for office in Nebraska when, um, you know, it costs so much money, it takes so much time, and then you don't earn any money once you get into office. I also think that candidates, um, you know, are under so much more scrutiny than they used to be. Like, the campaigns can get so much dirtier and nastier. And so while we're a majority conservative state, the nature of our electoral system has created the situation in Nebraska where a handful of extreme conservatives that don't reflect the beliefs of most Nebraskans have an outsized influence and they vote in lockstep with the far right governor all the time. And so it makes sense that a good portion of the people who can run and win are older and wealthier, are white men, because it costs so much money to run for office and you don't earn any money. Um, And so it just creates this kind of feedback loop and self-perpetuating thing um, that we get this group of elected officials in Nebraska that don't really reflect the people that they serve. You know, Nebraska on average, is a lot more progressive than our statewide elected officials. The average Nebraskan is more progressive than Pete Ricketts or Deb Fisher or Ben Sass or, you know, Robert Evnen or Doug Peterson or any of the statewide elected officials we have. Um, and I think that that also re- uh, reflects sort of a crisis in democracy that's something I will be focusing on quite a bit um, throughout the remainder of my term, just making sure that we protect the voting rights, that we protect democracy, um, and that we make sure that our elections are free and fair. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Senator Megan Hunt. Join the conversation on social media using hashtag RiversideChats.
So in terms of then legislation and protecting that right or protecting or you know, trying to address that crisis of democracy that you're talking about, what, what does that look like for you in terms of actually going to the job and what do you have to do to do that? In terms of protecting democracy? <laughs> well, well, sure, then like a Nebraska level. Yeah, so in the legislature, I, it's a lot of just kind of knowing the role that I have to play. Uh, I serve on the Government, Military, and Veterans Affairs Committee, and we hear most of the election bills that come through in Nebraska. So I play an important role on that committee in vetting the bills, um, making sure that they're ready for floor debate, amending bills that are problematic, and potentially blocking them from reaching debate if, if it's a you know, bad bill or one that results in voter suppression. Um, but I think what all of us need to do is just remain vigilant and proactive and detecting and combating these threats against democracy by using every tool available. Like it's really an on hands, all hands on deck situation at this point. We have to think about legislation, which is something that I can do. We have to think about public pressure, which is something that everybody needs to do on their elected officials to um, say that, you know, we want one person, one vote. We want free and fair elections. We want people to have access to the ballot and organizing and also litigation. Um, I also think that we have to make sure that we keep the fight for voting rights connected to the fight against election subversion. Like these aren't two different problems because subverting an election, which I think you know, could happen in 2022 and 2024, it's made a lot easier when we have restrictive and confusing voting rules. So when the process of voting has become criminalized, when it's harder to vote, when people misunderstand how to vote, when we have these manufactured claims of non-existent fraud, that really gives an easy excuse to the people who want to overturn the results of free and fair elections. Um, so, you know, the work in committees, the work on the floor, and then honestly, the work of activists and advocates in Nebraska is going to be so important to making sure that doesn't happen here. So, I mean, are, are there proposals that would make it more difficult to vote or that would threaten the integrity of Nebraska's elections in the upcoming cycles? Well, I don't know what's going to get introduced in 2022, but um, in the past year, we've seen bills to, uh, for example, require that our ballots have a watermark on them uh, as if that's going to make it more, <laughs> more, uh, you know, less likely to have fraudulent things going on that that will do nothing for that. And it will also cost like a lot of money for Nebraska. So that's not a good solution. Um, we'll probably see a bill again to go to a winner take all system in Nebraska for our, our uh, electoral votes. Um, when we nominate you know, our president and we have a ballot initiative for voter ID. So these are just three examples of things that we've seen in the past and that continue to be a threat here. Well, so I, it, it's something where voter ID, it, I think people oftentimes kind of minimize that issue where they don't quite understand it. So can you clarify, I guess, for anyone who doesn't know, what it is about voter ID that makes it more difficult for people to vote in kind of a fair way or just for, for people who aren't trying to do any kind of cheating or anything? What is it about voter ID that you oppose? Well, basically, we have no evidence in Nebraska or anywhere that voter uh, fraud is happening. And 
if we add this layer of voter ID, you know, it just creates one more layer of friction that could prevent somebody from casting a ballot who's eligible to do so. Um, in testimony on this bill, we heard from people, you know, older, old women, grandmothers in western Nebraska saying, you know, I don't have an ID and I would have to drive a really long way to get one. And I don't really need one for the things that I do. And so I don't want to get one. We have people with issues with um like what their birth certificate says and makes it harder for them to get an ID. Basically, my deal is voting is a right and you shouldn't have to show an ID to exercise a right, especially when we don't have any reason for that. We have no demonstrated voter fraud, so there's no reason to pass a policy like this. We've also seen in other states where they passed voter ID that voter turnout decreased. And everybody should agree that the more people can vote who are eligible to vote, the more representative the results of that election are going to be. And so it makes you have to ask, okay, look at the party and look at the group of people that are trying to implement these voter you know, suppression laws. Why don't they think that they can put up candidates win fair and square? Yeah, well, I guess that, that gets to kind of a broader issue, which is our... If if there's no demonstrated problem and yet this is being proposed anyway, or there are various methods that are being proposed to address problems that there's not necessarily a statistical argument that need to be addressed, is I mean, is that coming from a place of misunderstanding? Is it coming from a place of misinformation, or is it coming from a more malicious place? I mean, what 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 drives some of this uh, urge to restrict voting or to have fewer people turn out? I mean, I just think it depends on. The person. I mean, I think that there's people who really believe deep down in their heart that we have voter fraud. Um, and I think that there's people who want to uh, do these, you know, ballot suppression and voter suppression initiatives because they think it's going to benefit the Republican Party. Um, you know, there's just no evidence of voter fraud. Requiring people to pay for an ID in order to vote is equivalent to a poll tax. And Nebraska can't afford to give out free IDs to everybody. Um, this would just really disproportionately disenfranchise the elderly and the disabled community. And so it's just not something that we need. And also, once again, I feel like this is one of those really divisive topics that gets both sides worked up into a froth and kind of distracts from like the day-to-day problems that people have. When people talk about voter ID or abortion or immigration, like these are really hot button issues in Nebraska, but on the whole, I mean, they aren't helping the average family or the average worker or the average student have an easier life. All the legislation that I care about and all of the policy that I want to use, like the small time that I have here in the legislature to work on, are those things that make you go, how did my life get easier? I can breathe a sigh of relief. Government is actually working for me and and helping simplify my life and increase my opportunities. Not just these little, like, um, you know, buzzword things and and news clips and clickbait that that people tend to rely on because they're more worried about getting attention than governing well. Yeah, I think that that goes back to the the celebrity idea again, attention in some ways and, uh, you know, just headlines, right? But mm-hmm. well, so okay, so let's get away from those then. Let's talk about the things that help people, the the, the issues. <laughs> uh, so, what, what, as far as your your time in the legislature so far, what are what are some of the things you're most uh, proud of being able to have accomplished or to move forward in terms of conversations or whatever it might be? Well, um, I was really excited that I passed my priority bill this year, um, which 
made it so that people can collect unemployment if they have to leave their job to care for a sick loved one. After COVID-19 and during COVID-19, because of course we're not really after it right now, um, you know, we heard from so many Nebraskans who had to leave their job because they were sick or because they had a loved one who was sick. And so I was able to move through a bill that um, allows those people to apply for unemployment, which is a great thing for those folks. Other things that we've done in Nebraska that are great, um, we ended solitary confinement for people who are disabled or pregnant. Um, we banned revenge porn. We passed a bill to update our building energy codes, which is like not a really sexy issue, but that's something that's going to do a lot for environmental sustainability going forward here in Nebraska. Um, and I'm going to continue working on the same issues that I've been working on since I got elected, which are things like food insecurity, raising the minimum wage, protecting access to health care. Um, and these are fights that we just continue to have. And so we have our wins here and there, and uh, we continue to work on the things that, that we don't quite make it on. Yeah, you, you tweeted, I think, sometime in the late summer, something along the lines of being pessimistic about Nebraska, the legislature's odds of passing any kind of meaningful climate change legislation, it's just that the numbers aren't there for it. And I talked to John Kavanaugh about that, and he, he didn't seem too jaded about the possibility that ultimately things might move past the era where it's so politicized that nothing really happens, or at least maybe enough disasters have to happen for for change to occur, which is, he's, he's saying this, and you know, he's got that like sort of calm way of talking, and he's sort of soothing me, even though yeah, he's kind of terrifying that is a me. Calm way of, that's a calm way of talking. I can't buy that. I'm sorry. Like, if you say enough disasters are going to happen that people finally start taking climate change seriously. Well, we have over 700,000 people dead of COVID, and we still can't get people to get vaccinated. We still can't even get people to wear masks. So to say that makes no sense. What will it take, do you think, to get Republicans to take climate change seriously, to get those numbers to actually address it in a way that saves lives? Look, when you can't change the people, change the people. This is where advocates and activists and the people who are doing the grassroots organizing and the everyday folks, the educators, that's where we have to rely on them. Because of the 49 people that we currently have in the state legislature, we don't have 33 people who take climate change seriously enough to pass any meaningful policy change around that. So we have to change the people. We need different people to run for office. We need to create an institution and, and make reforms within the institution that makes it more accessible for more people to run for office. Not just, you know, the wealthy, typically white, typically male people who can afford to run because, uh, you know, when you do these surveys of people in Nebraska and the issues they care about, those aren't the issues that we're actually taking up in the legislature because we have like such a homogenous group of people who think the same way. Um, and I feel like the most important, uh, most helpful thing that we can do in the legislature in the meantime, until we change the people, is just keep having the conversation and creating these platforms um, through committee hearings, through interim studies, for folks to share their views and their experiences on these topics. Um, I, I think that we have to keep these topics, keep making them come up all the time yeah. so that people are forced to discuss it and debate it and and kind of defend the reason that they don't think it's a problem. It's it's weird to me. I just think about it's It's so terrifying to me, especially over the last couple of years, seeing all the headlines, seeing what's happening, seeing what's right in front of us. 
to then just sort of shrug that off is something that I struggle with. I mean, I, I, I don't want to keep asking you just to like diagnose why people disagree with you. But I mean, it's one of those things where it's tough for me to see how change happens, how people get persuaded if what's right in front of them doesn't seem to make an impact compared to, I don't know, where they get their information, cable news or whatever it might be. But I mean, as far as the legislature in the face of something like climate change, have you seen any uh, reactions to the news, to the actual disasters that, pe- that are affecting people? Like, are is there a possibility of persuasion among people who are there? Tom, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be so doom and gloom, but I'm just talking about the body that we have now. Um you know, Senator Patty Panzing Brooks, a year or two ago, she had a really great bill to create a climate change commission that would just do a study and make a recommendation to the executive and legislative branches about what is climate change and climate sustainability going to look like in Nebraska for the next 20, 50, 100 years? And what are some policy considerations that we should take into consideration, uh, you know, in reaction to that? And that bill got filibustered. Um, we couldn't get 17 votes for it, or, or we couldn't get 33 votes for it to make sure that it could pass. So, um, you know, in this particular group, we don't even have the support to say that climate change exists and that it's worth even learning about. It, this isn't even a bill to take any policy steps. It's just a bill to say, let's learn about it. And we couldn't even pass that. It got filibustered. Um, so... Folks cannot look to the legislature to solve everything. You know, we can keep things in the conversation. We can keep bringing up the same things over and over again. But until we change the people, the people are not going to change. I'm talking today with Senator Megan Hunt. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'll continue my conversation with Senator Hunt after this break. My parents were what you'd call wandering souls. I must have lived in a half dozen places before I was two years old. But eventually, my family wandered into this little sawmill town called Walden in northern Colorado. My mom says the town was really kind of hip back then. She'd put me and my brother in a little red wagon and pull us downtown. When we moved there in 74... There was a lot going on. There was um, an art supply store. There was a health food store. There was a hardware store right on Main Street. I remember the uh, ice cream parlor and toy store. Yeah. And, And your dad immediately started playing music with the rhythm wrestlers. The town welcomed us in, and for the first time, we settled down. But by the time I went to college, Walden was changing, fast. The town mayor, Jim Dustin, describes what happened. It used to have a sawmill. It used to have a uh, coal mine. It used to have a railroad. All those things went away. And even a recent fracking boom didn't revive things. And now my hometown has shrunk to nearly half as many people as when I was a kid. I wondered... Just how small can a town shrink before it just disappears? From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, 
This is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your favorite app is. I'm talking with Senator Megan Hunt about the Nebraska State Legislature, how her first term impacted her worldview, and what we might expect from her second term that she's currently running for. Here's the rest of our conversation. You've said uh, somewhere on social media at some point that you, you think sometimes that you... Do, you can do more good for the community, sometimes outside of the legislature, than within it. So, I mean, what makes you feel that way, and uh, how does that manifest for you? That's absolutely true. One reason that's true is because I can only introduce bills for the first 10 days of every session. So, you know, for 10 days in January each year, I can introduce bills, and none of those bills necessarily anticipate what could happen in February or March or August. You know, in 2020, when we all introduced our bills in January, none of us knew that we were on the brink of a global pandemic. And I think that we would have picked very different priorities. We would have introduced very different bills if we knew the needs that Nebraskans were going to have in a matter of three or four months. And so we were kind of left without a lot of policy options just because of the rules we have within our institution about introducing bills. Uh, so... When you're in an institution like a legislature, like any government body, you know, there's, there's rules and guardrails that keep you, um, you know, that, that maintain norms. And I think that most of our norms are pretty good, but it doesn't make us nimble. And so, you know, nonprofit groups, community groups, direct action groups, neighborhood associations, anywhere that the power is closer to the people, you're going to get faster results, you might get better results, and you're going to build a groundswell of support that will trickle up to lawmakers like, like me and like my colleagues in the legislature. Um, I, you know, I do think that this isn't like the most power you can have. This isn't the best way to exercise change. It's just really important at the end of the day that you have the right people in their seats voting the right way because you know, we vote on things that are really critical for people. But this isn't the place where most change happens. If that were true, the legislature would look very different. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you think there's a chance for the legislature to look different? I mean, it, it, would there be a, is there a world where it's a full-time job that pays decently and that people who don't have other gigs are maybe more drawn to, and it just becomes kind of a, you know, a norm for people to want to be a part of it who don't look like everybody who's in it now? That would be great. That would take um, a change to the Constitution because our pay is in the Constitution. So the people would have to vote on that. We've had in the last 20 years a couple times that's been on the ballot and it failed every time. Um, but, you know, I think that there's other ways. Like, I've been very encouraged in the last four years by the candidate recruitment that I've seen happening, by the, just the number of people reaching out to me, whether it's on social media or giving me a call or an email or just coming up to me in the coffee shop even saying, you know, I'm thinking about running for office. And the more people are willing to be outspoken about their values, who are willing to vote with the same integrity as their values 
and be a good example for Nebraskans. I think it just shows more Nebraskans that this is a place where you can serve. Um, you know, I often say, like, it's not Jefferson and Lincoln down there. You don't have to be a genius to run for office. And it's been really, really encouraging to me in the last four years to see how many people are interested in running for office for the first time. Yeah, I mean, so do, do you think that is a cause, like, your your assessment that the the voting populace is more progressive than a lot of the representatives, do you see a shift in the amount of people who maybe will get elected? I know there was kind of a blow to at least Omaha in the municipal election where a lot of the progressive candidates did not make a lot of traction. But, I mean, do you think that there is kind of a movement that's going to change the uh, the electorate in a meaningful way? Yeah, I do. I think our demographics are changing. And I think that just with the political um, realities that we're living with today, both locally and at the federal level, people are more tuned in to what's happening politically and in their government than they were before. And that's only a good thing. That can only be a good thing. The more people get civically engaged, the better our representation is going to be because that's going to have those long-term effects. Um, You know, one of my favorite things that I do in my job is I go talk to kids at schools and the questions they ask, Tom, are so intelligent, um, so thoughtful. I feel like I talk to, you know, sixth and seventh graders who are thinking on a level of a lot of folks that I went to college with, like asking the same kind of questions and having the same conversations that I was having in my mid-20s. So, you know, I have to stay hopeful about the future because everything I'm seeing um, just shows me that folks are getting even more civically engaged than ever. Yeah, I, I relate to that. I think I was I was so I was vaguely engaged, but like you know, kids today are talking about the filibuster and they're talking about all these things that I. Oh my gosh, I know. Yeah, it's just completely different. Which I mean, what do you attribute that to? Why are people more engaged now? I don't know. Maybe it's the internet. I mean, maybe you know, folks are following people locally. For one example, locally is. Um, there's been this kind of very grassroots organized effort to have attorneys go provide free legal assistance for folks in Omaha who are getting evicted. And I just saw something on social media um, saying that the eviction rate in Omaha has dropped by, you know, something like 80%. And that's just because attorneys have been going over to the courthouse and offering to represent people in their evictions hearings. And people are posting about this and people are talking about this and it's affecting kids and youth. And um, I go to city council uh, meetings and there's kids there testifying on things. And, um, you know, maybe it's social media. Maybe, you know, that's a big advantage of our more connected world. I don't really know, but it just makes me happy to see. Yeah, I guess it's sort of like you've got the two sides of that. You've got uh, the exciting people who are learning, who are using it, using the Internet, using interconnectedness of the Internet and the world we live in to try to be more broadly uh, accepting or interested or challenging themselves. And then you've got, you know, like your, your QAnon people. So uh, maybe it's, it goes both ways. Uh, but, we've, but we've always had that. Like there's true. always been Internet conspiracies. There's always been like, you know, birds of a color and freaks with the same flag fighting each other in forums or chat rooms or whatever. Um, I'm not, I'm not a detractor of social media and the internet. I often go to like conferences or seminars where people talk about like, Oh, what do we do to get people off social media? And what do we do about the bullying on Twitter? And all of these things are a big deal. And we have to make sure that folks are staying safe and that, um, you know, people are being respectful as possible, but, 
these problems have always existed with the internet. And, uh, you know, I just choose to focus on how we can use it for the good, like to really get these kids involved civically, for example. And that's how I see so many people using it. You, you've mentioned before, speaking of conspiracies, you were an Art Bell fan, right? Yeah, I was. <laughs> I, I think about that. I, was, I, I liked Coast to Coast when I was a kid. I used to listen to it. I'm not a huge George Norrie fan, but it seems like that it went from kind of this fun exploration of sort of like alternative ways of looking at everything where you didn't necessarily take it seriously. You didn't necessarily <laughs> have to think it was real, but it was kind of fun or it spooked you out or whatever. Uh, but it, it seems like... So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Can we tell your, your listeners what that is? Like, coast to okay. coast? Yeah, that's true. They're probably yeah, not all so, huge fans of it. <laughs> so I'm a huge fan, too. So Coast to Coast AM was the show started by Art Bell in the 80s, and it covers all these topics of like paranormal, uh, conspiracy theories, mysteries, weird things, aliens, stuff like that. And it was a really late night radio show that in Omaha, I think it started at 11 on weekends and then midnight on weekdays. And this guy, Art Bell, he did the show from his trailer in Pahrump, Nevada, every single night for like 40 years or something. And it was an amazing show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what was what was your what was it that appealed to you about Art Bell? You know, here's what he was so good at. He always did open lines and every Friday was open lines, but he had an hour of open lines at the end of every show and sometimes at the beginning of every show. And people would call. They wouldn't be screened. He never, ever used a call screener. Um, Sometimes they would say really smart things. Sometimes they would say stuff that made no sense. Sometimes they were abusive. Sometimes they were friendly. And he handled all of it with pure professionalism. Like, he's just a master interviewer. He's a master of his craft with the radio. And that made an impression on me when I was a kid listening to him. Just that he could really kind of let stuff roll off his back, roll with the punches, and, you know, put together a great show no matter what weird factors were going on. So, I mean, that you, that impact it left is something that you, would you say you apply something like that in listening to constituents? Is this, was Art Bell an influence on your, your legislative work? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. I don't screen my calls either. You know, I, I have a policy. I never, ever block people on social media. I never mute them. You know, I think that when you are a public official, you have a responsibility to let these platforms that you create be sort of a, a town square. And that's how I see the platforms that I have to communicate on, whether it's like Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And then, of course, in my office, you know, anybody can give me a call and I'll pick up the phone, too. So um, you, I don't, you, you can't see people with different views or even people who are hostile to you as dangerous to you. There's nobody here who's dangerous to me. And there's, there's nothing anybody can do to hurt me by me just listening to what they have to say. So, um, you know, throughout my time in the legislature, before I was in the legislature, and after I'm in the legislature, that's just an approach that I take to life. Did, did you ever get a chance to tell him? I can't remember when he passed away. Did you, did you ever tell him you, you uh, brought his approach to the state legislature? I never said that. Well, I, I wasn't running or anything at the time when he passed away, but um, I do have a little Art Bell connection. So in, gosh, I want to say like 2013 or 2014, um, I was running a clothing store in Dundee, and we did like a UFO-related collection, 
And I actually bought an ad on Coast to Coast AM to advertise it. So that was just like something I always wanted to do. It was like a bucket list thing for me was my store had an ad on Coast. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. I, 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 I didn't know that we were going to land on such an interesting answer about Art Bell. I was going <laughs> to talk about conspiracies or something, but that was way better. Um, all right, let, let's transition as we get sort of close to the end here to legislative priorities for the new term. What are you, what are you planning to bring to the legislature? You know what? I kind of mentioned knowing my role in the legislature. There are a lot of bills that I'm looking at introducing. Um, gosh, I don't even know if I have a list of them, but uh, I'll be introducing a lot of the same stuff that I've done. For example, raising the tips minimum wage. It's at $2.13 an hour. That's the lowest wage in the entire country. And it hasn't been raised since 1991. So I want to make sure that our tipped workers are able to make a living wage in Nebraska and we can raise it from $2.13 an hour. Um, I'll also introduce another bill to allow people who have drug convictions to receive food assistance. Uh, We have a, a law right now saying that Once you are done finishing your sentence, you're done with your probation, parole, post-release supervision, everything. Um, If you have a drug conviction, you can go back and live life like everybody else, except you can never, ever qualify for food assistance. So during the pandemic, this became particularly pressing because we were getting calls and DHHS was getting calls from folks saying, you know, I've never been system involved before. I've never, you know, taken any government benefits. And I applied for food assistance and I find out I can't get it because 30 years ago I had, you know, a marijuana charge or conviction or something. So, you know, in practical terms, this is just a really outdated policy that isn't good for people. And then also, I think that we can expect a lot of anti-trans legislation to be introduced and anti-abortion legislation. And I'll be the point person on um, doing opposition on those bills. So, so that'll take up a lot of my time, too. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, as far as reintroducing legislation that you've tried to have passed in previous years, is the, the plan there that maybe the climate around it has changed or that the way that you debate it can maybe persuade more people? Or I mean, how does how does it work? What makes you optimistic and you know, what makes it worth reintroducing, I guess? Well, I think there's different reasons that things don't pass. Every senator can select one priority bill every year. And so sometimes... Uh, you know, I have a couple bills that are worthy that I think I could get enough votes to, to do, but because I can only choose one priority, we really only have time in the legislature to get to one or two of them. So sometimes time is a factor. Um, sometimes, you know, with, with colleagues, myself included on many issues, like ignorance is a factor. It's not that they oppose it. It's not always that people oppose legislation. It's just that they don't know enough about it. So... Um, you know, there's education that needs to happen. And then there's like the public demand for different policies. So if we can keep educating the public and keep activating them to contact their representatives, that does make a difference over time. Um, so, you know, I think if something's good enough to introduce in 2019, it's good enough to introduce in 2022. And the issue is still with us. It's still pressing and affecting people. So I'm going to continue to work on it. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Senator Megan Hunt. How has it been uh, without Ernie Chambers? I really miss Ernie. Uh, Senator Chambers was a really important mentor to me. 
um, he taught me the importance of understanding the rules and the procedures and that if you can get that stuff down and understand it better than anybody else, you actually have the most power in that legislature. And that's what's so special about our unicameral system is that, you know, there's no majority minority leader, there's no caucuses, there's nobody telling you what to do. And if you master those rules, like Senator Chambers did, you actually have a lot of opportunity to bend things your way. With, with him not there, you know, we have a lot um, more time on the floor because he was kind of famous for taking a lot of time up with his speeches. Um, but most of all, I just, I just miss his presence and his friendship there. Are you still friends outside of uh, the legislature? Yes, we are. He came by my place on Labor Day and he brought a drawing that he made for my daughter of a mountain lion and a couple poems that he wrote. And uh, he's been, he, he remains an important person in my life for sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that he, I mean, he's, he's still around, it seems like. But uh, as far as those speeches, it was always fun to see what exactly he was up to and how he would frame certain issues that he cared about and whatever day he was doing it. Well, he's still playing the hits, too. Um, if you, his daughter, Gayla, has put together a YouTube channel for him. Oh. And if you look for him on YouTube, you can find these videos of him that his, his daughter helps him make. And uh, he just did this great one about the vaccine and COVID and, like, why he got the vaccine and how important it is that everybody does it. Like, and I, it's almost like you can't take the legislature out of the man, right? <laughs> He's got to have a platform somewhere to do his speeches, and you can find him on YouTube now. And I like to watch him with my daughter. That's great. Yeah, I didn't know about that. I'll have to look at it. Um, all right. So one other thing I want to talk about. I know we, you don't want to do all the sensationalistic things, but uh, I saw you had posted a prediction that the first woman president will be a Republican elected in 2024. And I'm curious, what makes you see that particular future as a likelihood? Well, a lot of people have written about this more intelligently than I'll be able to speak about it off the cuff here. Um, I think... I think that that's the way it's going to go. I think that the only way the powers that be will allow a woman to carry that kind of power is if it comes in a Republican package. Uh, and I think we'll see the same kinds of things happening in Nebraska, actually. I think we'll see our first female speaker of the legislature. I think we'll see our uh, first female uh, chairman of the executive committee like i think we'll see a lot more women in power but i do not think they're going to be progressive women um because i think that the majority of the people in nebraska who hold power are not going to be open to that and i you know this also ties into my concerns about election integrity and voter suppression um it concerns me to see folks that are basically in the um, ideological minority of our country who are so conservative, um, having so much power over our electoral process. And, you know, I think a Republican woman is going to get elected and everybody's going to say, what a great victory for feminism. And we'll continue to see these conservative women like wrap themselves in the mantle of feminism when it suits them. But then when they have the opportunity to do something to actually help women, they turn their back on them. Um, and that's that's a pattern that I continue to see that, that really frustrates me. I hope I'm wrong, but this is my prediction. 
Well, yeah, I, I'm sorry that I, I dragged the conversation into all these sort of negative places with all some negative predictions <laughs> okay. and feelings. I, I feel like we need to end on a happier note. Is there, is, you know, how, how's cricket? How's cricket doing? You are sweet. You know, I not to be like such a Debbie Downer, like listeners, folks listening to this show, you got to understand being outside the institution is a really, really great thing. Um, being able to influence change on the ground, in your communities, right in your neighborhoods, directly with the people who need the help is so important. And it is so much more powerful than anybody can do from any legislature. And that's what this job has taught me. Um, and that's a really good thing, because that's a good thing for the people to understand that. So to your question, I got a pandemic dog named Cricket. <laughs> I adopted her from a, a local rescue place. And She's half French Bulldog and half Pomeranian, and I'm petting her right now. And she has just brought so much joy to me and my daughter. And we're not allowed to bring her to the Capitol, but we still do sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the wide variety of opinions that you brought, as well as tones. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad that you're doing well. I'm glad Cricket's doing well. And I'm glad Alice is doing well, too. So uh, thank you for being on the show again. It's been really fun to catch up. Thank you so much, Tom. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Riverside Chance is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.